pray with me? Father, we praise you for your word. God, we have sung truths from this word. We have prayed in light of this word. Father, now we turn to this word. And we would ask that you, the living God who inspired this word, who has so determined to communicate to his creation intelligibly, definitively, objectively, through language, that we might have ears that would hear. Father, as Jesus spoke, let those who have ears, let them hear. God, may we have those ears this morning as your people. Father, may your spirit move within our midst. There are two or three here. And so, God, we know that you are present, and we would ask that you would speak. Father, I pray that you would remove the things that might distract us, anticipations of this afternoon, worries of the coming week, frustrations and disappointments based on this past. God, I pray that you would allow this time to be a time of sanctuary, which is why we call this place such. God, we've gathered as your church to fix our eyes on your word, to worship you, to be thankful, to give back to you all that is yours. As Jesus said to those who questioned him, give to Caesar, give to the world that which belongs to the world, all that will pass away, and we have done so in a sense already with a portion of the material things with which you have blessed us. But God, we want to give to you all that is yours, which in truth is everything, our very lives. And this is why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Everything. God, may that be true of us now. May we set aside those things. Forgive us for longing for created things rather than finding our satisfaction in the Creator. Might we walk away from our time together spent studying Your Word with a greater understanding of how You desire we live. Live in light of the beauty of Your grace and the Gospel which You have given to us. And Father, we would ask these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Or if I were to ask you this morning, what attribute we most often associate with God, what would you say? Anybody? Love. Love. Give me some others. Righteousness, okay. Any others? All right, I'm hearing a few. Gracefulness, mercy, all right. Let me go ahead and say, if it's fair, the consensus, or at least initially, was love, right? An attribute with biblical attestation. 1 John 4, 8 tells us what? God is Love And I would agree, scriptures are filled with declarations of God's love, and they culminate in his ultimate demonstration of it. John's words, once again, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The hymn writer, Frederick Lyman, captured it in this way. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen 
can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. God's love, church, is glorious. To know that he forgives all our sin, removes our shame, and restores us all while we are unworthy is completely overwhelming, isn't it? That's God's gracious love, a love that, that's even more difficult to grasp and accept when its objects are people I don't like or people who've hurt me, treated me poorly, like we talked about with the children, who might be even considered my enemies. God's gracious love is amazing when I'm receiving it, but it becomes a different matter when I see God loving my enemies in the same manner. Can you relate this morning? Now, I remember being convicted of my hypocrisy for that's what that is. A few months ago, as I was watching a parole hearing for a former football star whose life famously fell apart in the mid-90s amidst a scandalous murder trial. And despite being acquitted, this man's life was marked by continued moral failings and numerous acts of violence for which he was eventually incarcerated. Now, many years later, anyone hazard a guess? O.J. Simpson was finally eligible for parole. And the hearings, interestingly enough, were televised. And as I watched the proceedings, I felt little empathy for this former Heisman winner as he tried to explain why he now merited early release. And I laughed out loud, honest, when he explained how he'd found Jesus and been saved. And then I cringed when he declared he'd become a Baptist <laughs> as just the kind of press we need with all of our own internal bickerings, right? Did anybody else see this hearing? It was crazy. My first reaction was one of incredulity. No way has O.J. Simpson found Jesus. No way. The man is a murderer. He's a liar. He's a cheat and adulterer. He is a sinner and God wouldn't. But then the moment that thought ran through my mind, I heard the words of Ephesians 2 and verse 1. As for you, Andrew, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made you, Andrew, alive with Christ Jesus, even when you were dead in transgressions, because it's by what? Grace you've been saved. Friends, this, this is the nature of our God's love. And it's a love that we're going to encounter in our text this morning, which Corky read for us just a moment ago. And so would you, if your Bibles are still open, look back with me to 1 Kings 21, verses 17 to 21. And I want us to consider, first of all, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Verse 17, we're informed that then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood. Dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Now, 
before we consider the content of this word, I want to be sure to point out how this word arrives at a time when the prophet is still in hiding from the king and his queen. Now, you may recall if you were with us several weeks ago, we studied Jezebel's threat and Elijah's subsequent fear-induced flight to Mount Horeb where he met with God. And Ahab and Jezebel were determined to destroy the prophet. And so despite the fact that he's been out delivering messages to men like Hazael, king of Aram and Jehu, who was the son of Nimshi, recorded back in chapter 19, don't think for a moment that Elijah's in the clear. On the contrary, he is still on the run. But then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And the first thing God calls for is a conference. A conference. God instructs Elijah what to do to go, who to see Ahab, king of Israel, and where to find him, Naboth's vineyard. God even lets Elijah know why Ahab is in Naboth's vineyard. He's there taking possession of it. And so in words that would have been familiar to the prophet and which would have provoked similar sentiments to those felt the first time such a word was received, God directs Elijah to conference with Ahab. And friends, in this directive from the Lord, I believe we need to see at least two things. First of all, what it is that concerns God. Sin. In the eyes of God's church, sin is a big deal. He doesn't overlook it, pretend it's not there, or make light of it. For the Lord, sin is deadly. It is a deal breaker. It is a relationship destroyer and is therefore cause for ultimate concern. Unfortunately, there are many churches in our nation that do not share God's sentiments regarding sin. They prefer to focus on God's love, that attribute we mentioned earlier. Preaching a message of moral engagement based on a utopic vision of humanity, which sounds appealing, but has little correlation to reality. Emmanuel, God takes sin seriously, and then he deals with it directly. He deals with it directly. Elijah is sent to deal with Ahab in person. And this is as intimate an interaction as is humanly possible. God doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't allude to the concerns that he has. He simply deals with sin directly. But sadly, this demonstration of love, and yes, it is a demonstration of love, for as the writer of Hebrews makes clear, my son or, or daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son or a daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what child is not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons and daughters. And sadly, this expression of divine love is grossly absent from churches in our nation. Rather than concerning ourselves with sin and demonstrating God's love by addressing it directly, I fear the majority of churches in our nation ignore it for fear of offending others, of, of driving them away, of losing their support, both practical and material, meaning money. The first thing that God calls for is a conference. The second is a confrontation, a confrontation. And this point merely develops what we just discussed, that God abhors sin and he deals with it directly. As the Lord instructs Elijah, say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? How's that for blunt? For cutting to the chase, no mincing words. No trifling with formalities. God simply points out Ahab's sin. 
with words and a manner that reflected the prophet's appearance. Simple, harsh, unrefined. God confronts the king. In church, I believe in this confrontation, we see but one of the ways in which God works to draw our attention to our sin. And at times, it may be abrupt and harsh, such as here. At others, gentle but illuminating, as is seen in the prophet Nathan's rebuke of King David. You may recall how David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then conspired to have her husband Uriah murdered, is confronted by God's prophet Nathan. Now, unlike Elijah, who simply marched up to Ahab and stuck a finger in his chest, Nathan told David a story, if you recall. And in this story, there were two men living in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of cattle and sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He, he raised it. It grew up in his home with him and his children. It shared his food. Nathan says it even drank from his cup and slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And then as the story goes on, there was a day when a traveler came to visit the rich man, but the man refrained from taking one of his herd of his sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for his visitor. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And at this point, as you can imagine, David was incensed. He said to the prophet, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. At which point Nathan looked at David and said, you are that man. Yes, you so two strikingly different confrontations, and yet in each, God's purpose is to point out sin. Now, whether the approach that God takes is determined by the character of the one he's confronting or by some other metric, I don't know that we can say. But what we can be certain of is the condemnation. The condemnation. God directed Elijah to conference with Ahab, a confrontation for the purpose of condemnation, a third observation regarding this word from the Lord. And we see it in the second half of verse 19, which reads, Then say to him, This is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> How harsh is this, friends? Can you imagine being the recipient of this message? Now, at first, this struck me as a rather cold condemnation, considering the fact that Ahab, to our knowledge from the text, doesn't actually know how Naboth died. He was simply informed by his wife that the man was no longer alive, if you recall. The actual act itself was carried out at the behest of Jezebel. And so since she was complicit in the murder, I could understand her being condemned. But Ahab? And friends, I believe that my initial concern regarding Ahab's condemnation simply reveals my stunted understanding of sin, as if sin is simply something I do and not a sentiment that I possess. Church, I believe that what we see in this word from the Lord is the true nature of sin. And Jesus memorably articulated this later on when in his Sermon on the Mount, he declared, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who says to his brother, Raka, you good for nothing, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Ahab's condemnation reveals the extent of sin. It isn't simply something that we do or we do not do, as if sin originated outside of us. Rather, sin is the result of the overflow of our hearts. 
In other words, it is intimately tied to our being. Ahab hadn't thrown a single rock, and yet he shared the guilt of all those who had. He had coveted his neighbor's possession. He had plotted to steal it. He'd given approval to his wife's murderous plan, and so he shared in her just condemnation. And friends, we all, like Ahab, stand justly condemned before God. There's not a person on the planet who's sinless, save our Lord Jesus Christ. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we've seen the word of the Lord. Now let's consider the word of the king. The word of the king. Look at verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, So you found me, my enemy. Oh, I wish we could hear how Ahab spoke those words, don't you? Was it in anger? So you found me, my enemy. Or shock? So so you found me, my enemy? Or possibly frustration? So you found me, my enemy. I I believe personally, I believe it was a conflation of all three. Angry, shocked, frustration. Let me show you why. I want you to flip forward in your Bible, just one chapter, to chapter 22, just for a moment, and find verse 7. 1 Kings 22, verse 7. And this chapter records Ahab's battle to reclaim Ramoth Gilead. It was a battle that included, interestingly enough, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And so at some point prior, this city had fallen into the hands of the Arameans. And while Israel and Aram had had a period of peace that they'd been enjoying, Ahab was now determined to have his city back. And so he invites Jehoshaphat to join him in his campaign, and the king agreed. But just to make sure that he's covered all his bases in preparation for the battle, Ahab inquired of his 450 prophets of Asherah, shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And to a man, they all say, go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand, a very positive, universal perspective, which sadly did not satisfy Jehoshaphat, because not one of these priests served Yahweh. So he asked Ahab as to whether the, you know, they couldn't possibly inquire of Yahweh. Was there not a prophet of the Lord who could be consulted? To which Ahab replies, I love this, verse 7, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, always bad. Isn't that revealing? Ahab clearly cannot stand God's prophets because all that they remind him of are his failings. When Ahab first encounters such a prophet, it's Elijah, according to the text as we study together. And the king at that point is seated on his throne with his queen in his throne room. And he's informed by Elijah the prophet there's going to be a drought for an open-ended period of time. Why? Because of sin. Then the next time he meets God's prophet, Elijah, Ahab's hunting his herds. And the prophet instructs the king, you, Ahab, are the troubler of Israel. And then the third encounter, as we saw together, doesn't involve Elijah But the outcome is the same. After failing to eliminate Hazael, king of Aram, Ahab is condemned by God's prophet, owing his life for that of the man that God had called him to remove. And so today we know the kinds of words Elijah spoke to the king from our text. And so based upon precedent, I believe it's safe to say that here in Naboth's vineyard, Ahab's reaction to Elijah is one of angry, shocked frustration. Another theologian expressed it this way, the prophet would be the last man Ahab wished or expected to see, believing that his wife's threat had frightened him away so that he wouldn't be troubled by him any longer. The king was evidently startled and dismayed at the sight of Elijah. And I think it's also very revealing how Ahab refers to Elijah as my enemy. My enemy. It's an interesting reference 
for God's prophet when you consider the fact that in the next chapter, the king willingly consulted God prior to the battle for Ramoth Gilead. You would think that if Ahab viewed God's prophet as his adversary, then surely that meant that God was also his adversary, right? And search, in, in this seemingly inconsistent behavior, I believe we're given a glimpse into how the sinful heart operates. For Ahab, the only thing that mattered was himself. His friends were those who aided him in achieving his own ends. And therefore, anyone who opposed him was seen as his enemy. Ahab had no problem seeking the Lord's aid in his battle. If it served his own ends, his problem came when the Lord's anointed prophets opposed him. And so church here, I believe, is a frightening and very real warning that we need to heed because I believe that there are many in churches across our world today who, like Ahab, have no problem with the Lord. No problem. They're willing to attend church, serve, even go on missions because they believe it will aid their life's goal, which is going to heaven. But whenever they're confronted by God's prophets, His people, speaking His word, they get angry. And then they use terms like Israel's king describing those who've so confronted them as enemies or adversaries. Now, let me be clear regarding what our life's goal as Christians is so I don't contribute to confusion. But the Apostle Paul worded it thus for us in his letter to the church at Philippi. He said, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider it a loss. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know who? Christ. And the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing with him in his suffering so as to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul sums it up again. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Friends, heaven isn't the goal. The glory of Christ is. Heaven is a benefit of being with Christ. But we're called to and are living for the glory of Christ. And thus, whenever, church, we are rebuked in the Lord, our hearts should break and we should repent for our desire is to be like Christ. When we're living for our own ends, like a lamb that's fairer than day, where there'll be no more pain or sorrow and we'll be kicking it in our mansion with our peeps, then we've mistaken the blessing for the one who blesses. We've looked at the word of the Lord, the word of the king. Now let's examine the word of the prophet. The word of the prophet. In the second half of verse 20, Elijah declares, I have found you because you sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those 
belonging to Ahab, who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. This is a fairly comprehensive condemnation. You notice how Elijah first addresses Ahab, the king? I'm going to bring disaster on you. The king's debt due to his sin was about to come due. In his famous words, R.G. Lee, payday someday. And friends, I pray that you will hear in this word from the prophet the truth that we must all answer for our actions. There's not a person on this planet who is exempt. We will all be held to account. And tragically, there are many who console themselves with the thought, I've got time. I've still got time. I'm going to keep living for the moment while I'm young or young-ish so that I can make the most of my life and I'll deal with my wild oats later on. But friends, no one's guaranteed tomorrow. You know, those folks who went to church down in Texas thought they had life ahead of them. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. Elijah informed Ahab that disaster was upon him, but not only on him, but also upon his descendants, Ahab's descendants. All of the kids, king's kids and his grandkids are facing judgment because of his wickedness. And here, Elijah refers to two prior kings of Israel, Jeroboam and Basha, both who were evil men, despite God's warnings, rejected his precepts and led his people into idolatry. So God removed both men and their entire lines from the earth, meaning he eliminated all relatives such that there were none left to reproduce the genes of Jeroboam or Basha. And church, while the Bible makes clear with the coming of Christ, we are judged for our own actions, meaning God does not condemn us for the sins of our fathers. Yet, we do live with the consequences of our father's actions, don't we? Now, there are a number of us here this morning who may praise God regularly for the blessing of godly parents, but I know that there are many others who did not grow up in homes where Christ is glorified. And this isn't to say that the godly home was without struggle, but I thank God that my father wasn't an alcoholic, that he never committed adultery and then left our family, but sadly I know of many more today who cannot share these sentiments and whose lives have been significantly affected by the sins of their parents. And so moms and dads and grandparents, may we take this warning to heart Elijah declared judgment on the king, his descendants, and in particular, his wife, Ahab's wife. As wicked a woman as Jezebel was, she is singled out for her own special word of judgment. Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. So as with her husband, God informs Jezebel of her special payday someday. And you notice how Elijah provides no details regarding the time of said payday, but he does establish both the location and the means by which this evil queen will meet her end, a, a horrific end for an horrific life. And, and just in case any of us at this point might be beginning to feel a little something for Jezebel and Ahab, don't miss the word of the author. We've considered the word of the Lord, the word of the king, the word of the prophet. Now, hear the word of the author, verse 25. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner, going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Notice there how the sentence is enclosed in parentheses. And I believe what we have here is commentary by the writer of Kings to explain to us why such seemingly harsh 
judgments are being meted out against Ahab and his queen. Because I said as a moment, this is some serious punishment. I mean, it reads very, very difficultly. But it's made even more significant when you consider the cultural context and how, if you were to look back to Deuteronomy 28, there's included lack of proper burial and being eaten by wild animals as part of God's specific curse for those who are disobedient. And yet, friends, regardless of how harsh, severe this punishment may seem in life, don't miss the point that it all leads where? Death and eternal separation from God. This is the ultimate punishment, and it awaits all who are sinners. For the wages of sin is what? Death. There's not a person who can save themselves, for there is no one who is good, no one. Not even one. There's no one who seeks God. No one who understands. All have turned away. They have together become worthless for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Church, left to ourselves and facing the justice of God, our future holds nothing more than that which awaited Ahab and Jezebel. But God is a God of love. And so I want you to look back with me one final time to our text. Verse 27 to hear the last word of the Lord. The last word of the Lord. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Wow. Upon hearing the Lord's judgment, Ahab is a broken man. He tore his clothes. He followed the set pattern for displaying conviction of sin and a heart set on repentance. And to our surprise, some might say dismay, most certainly that of the prophet Elijah, he gets another word that postpones the foretold judgment of God because of Ahab's repentance. How do you think Elijah felt when he received this last word? I wonder if he shared the prophet Jonah's frustration when the Ninevites followed a similar pattern and God relented and he didn't send his fire to consume the city. If you recall from the prophet Jonah's story, he was genuinely angry with God that he didn't wipe him off the map, right? So how do you think Elijah felt? Better yet, let's make it personal. How do you think you would have felt? Here's a king who has hunted you for almost four years. He's forced you to live far from home in the desert, eating food brought to you by birds while he's been partying in his palace. You faithfully honored the Lord throughout this time while he has been adulterous, murderous, and greedy. And now as he awaits his final judgment, he is seemingly conscience-stricken. And he repents. Worse, God relents, at least for a time. How might you have felt? You know, at the beginning, I shared with you the story of my reaction to the O.J. Simpson parole hearing. And I noted, we noted the significance of God's gracious love because it reached even me. But when I see it being displayed in the life of someone who's wronged me, someone who's hurt me, someone who, like Ahab with Elijah, has tried to kill me, 
God's love becomes so much harder to handle, doesn't it? So much harder to understand. But church, that's the point. That's the point. God's love, that which God is, that was fully demonstrated when Christ died for us sinners. Me, you, every one of us. Church, God's love is not something that we can get, that we can merit and, and generate. We can't love God because we don't know what love is. We can't save ourselves because we're dead in our sin. Elijah stands as this incredible character in the Old Testament, but he wasn't an incredible demonstration for us because he was a prophet. He, he's an amazing example to us because he serves an incredible God. And so as we look at this story this morning, we consider our lives. There's two ways in which we receive this. There may be some of us who are thinking, there's no way God could love me. If he only knew what I've done, well, please know, God knows everything you've done. And he still sent his one and only son so that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. If you believe in Jesus, by his grace, you have life. But then if you've been struggling, as I so often do, with how could God love that sinner, that sinner? I pray that you've been reminded, as I have, the very thing that sent Christ to the cross is the heart that believes it is in some way worthy of God's love. Brothers and sisters, may we love one another because love comes from God. And it's by this that all the world will know that we are Christ's disciples if we have this love for one another. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are a God of love. Your word makes clear that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Jesus might not perish, but would have eternal life. And Father, it's easy for us in our sin-hardened state to view ourselves as in some way worthy of this act of love. Or, Father, in our stubbornness, we belittle the omnipotence of God and say there's no way God could do this. No way He could love me because of how wicked I am. And the God who is so thought of couldn't because He's powerless. But the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture is all-powerful. He did what He did while each of us was dead in sin, undeserving. And so as we look to a story as we have today, where a character is so vile that we, as we compare ourselves to him, could say, I'm not anywhere nearly as evil as Ahab. And yet we see you extending love to even Ahab. How is that even possible? We just can't get love. We have an understanding of affection 
that serves our own ends, but not of what love is. Because God is love, and we can't comprehend you. Father, in and of ourselves, we are finite, fallen human beings with no hope. And the world attests to our weakness. We have wars, we fight, we argue, we cheat, we lie. We do what we do to serve our own ends. Even acts of seeming benevolence are performed for personal gain, tax breaks, the praise of those around us, that we might be held in high esteem, be voted the man of Salisbury, 2017. For what? In the end, our, our actions will be measured. We will be held to account. And the judge will not be our peers. But you. And Father, you have made it clear in your word that sin separates us from you. And that without hope, in and of ourselves, we're lost. But you are a God of love. And your love is measureless. It is boundless. Your grace is amazing. In that while we were sinners, you extended hope. You sent your Son, who could be like us in human form, Jesus, perfect man, no flaws, and fulfill the requirements of your perfect law so that we might be clothed with Christ's perfection so that the holiness of God, as he looks upon sinful man, no longer sees Andrew the sinner, but rather Andrew clothed with the perfection of his son Jesus. Father, thank you for the grace of, of God. Thank you for your gospel. That we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We merely receive it by grace through faith. For this makes us all equal. Each and every one standing on the same platform. No one with an edge. The, every one of us beholding to you. Father, thank you that your love still amazes, that your love still saves. And Father, today I pray if there's any who have not found this love, experienced this love personally, recognize the severity of sin, the judgment that comes because of it, and found life that's there, it's available offered in the gospel. Lord, I pray that there might be one today. Father, let us not be duped into thinking that we have time, that we can delay and operate on our own timetable as if we control time. We know the foolishness of that. 
God, may we see today the, the necessity of responding. And I pray, God, that you would lead one today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.